0: Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Today I'm joined by Jack Lidecker, CISO at Gong. Jack brings 25 years of experience as a technologist and executive leader. He has built multiple world-class information security and risk management functions across diverse industries ranging from retail, technology, and consulting. First, a word from the CXO Programs team about a great event you should be aware of.
1: I'm Irina Waldmann, a CXO Programs Director. Are you a CISO or Senior Security Leader based in Europe? Join us in Amsterdam at the CISO Exchange from the 19th to the 20th of September. Network with peers, share insights, and learn from others' experiences with zero trust and digital transformation. Click on the link in the episode description. Jack, it's great to chat with you. Welcome. You've been doing this one for a bit now, so excited to finally be a part of it. Jack, tell me a little bit about
0: your role at Gong and what does Gong do?
1: I've been with Gong bit over two and a half years. So it's always been focused, I think, within the same goal. When you think about Gong is how do we bring an understanding and reality to all the customer interactions that are happening and be able to provide insights back with that, right? So if you go back a ways, initially it was call recording. It was also trying to pull stuff from what's happening with an email. We have a lot of our own large language models that we're being able to get insights out of that. But really the intention there is if you kind of talk with even our co-founders, How do we make sure we understand what's happening and how do we make sure people have the right insights to be able to respond to that? So some examples there might be, how's our go-to-market motion going? Are we missing things that maybe we think otherwise, right? And especially knowing that uh, you're more of just a Salesforce shop and other ones, you have activity-based, you understand what's happening in theory, right? But you're dependent on salespeople to put in what they feel is happening, whereas Gong's taking what's actually happening and then being able to tell you what needs to happen next. And my role from that perspective is everything to do with security, right? I'm the CISO over at Gong. So if it has any part of security, even overlapping with privacy that I work with on legal, that falls under my team.
0: Now, if I recall, Jack, when you were in initial discussions with with Gong, one of the things that got you really excited was the fact that they were fairly ahead compared to other players in the space in terms of the leveraging of large language models and some of the ways that you could leverage data to make go-to-market teams more effective. Now that that has become much more mainstream in the sense that not that everyone is doing it, but now that there's more awareness across IT and even at the consumer level, have you made any observations about the fact that you guys were so early in bringing these types of solutions to market that now there's greater understanding and appreciation for what's been built?
1: Yeah. If you think about what categories people fall into, right? We're in revenue intelligence. At one point there was conversation intelligence where it really was kind of understating what's there. I think as you saw chat GPT and people are getting excited with generative AI, all this is coming together where I think people are getting a better understanding of it. I, I think the main thing that's a bit different now than before is people are starting to understand the scale a little bit hey if i have all this data and i train it to do something it's going to give me something that in theory is going to be pretty accurate and something interesting that we need to deal with right especially with gong dealing with a lot of more proprietary models as well as leveraging some commercial ones we're able to leverage both so yes it is a bit more mainstream from that perspective but it is around how do we understand what's going on there? I think scale and data is something that makes it a little bit different for us. Our CEO just celebrated we passed 4,000 customers and we have billions and billions of calls and emails now. So we have massive amounts of data for some of the biggest customers in the world that we're able to take that and not just provide them insights, but understand, hey, what's good, what's bad? How do you get better? And I think that's something that's been exciting to see that we had a lot of that when I was there, but now we have even more data and more scale. And we've improved what we can do as well, right? So that's the the fun part of that from my perspective. And obviously being in charge of security for it, seeing what that means. And then also <laughs> the other aspect, I think a lot of companies always debate this aspect. But considering the type of data that we collect, we're a huge data repository. And our customers 100% drive a lot of what we have to do as well, right? Like security is something that is not a a hope to have or need to have. It's something that's core to what we do as well, which to me is exciting because I believe it helps drive our business. And we even have fun stats to be able to show that, which I couldn't before that I can actually see, all right, I'm part of 30% of calls that are brought up. I know if my team is involved on a sales call, I actually have a multiplier of being more successful of that actually closing than not. So those were things to me that were fun that, Also, I thought we might be able to do and took a while before we had data and saw how that would work that we can see now. So I think even outside of just the revenue aspect, the fact as a security leader, I can quantify that my team's having an impact of what we're doing overall to the business is something that's uh, more unique than I've had in the past. I suspect that it's fairly
0: rare where a go-to-market team, which traditionally may not have That many interactions with security and IT. And if they do, they're likely break fix type things. But now because of the importance that customers, clients, prospects put on the posture of an organization that they're considering as their business partner, your team has had to be built to not just manage everything internally, but also be part of the true business growth. Was that a huge shift for you or maybe for some of your staff?
1: I don't want to say that I think it's a shift. I would say I think some of it, I mean, if we go back to when I joined Gong, it's kind of a, a fun aspect just thinking about that. We were a much smaller company. We are a few hundred people. I was the first full-time security person. I mean, they had some VC, so some contractors and everything else, but I was charged with building the program as well as what we're doing externally at the same time. So I think some of that is just more of your building out and scaling that you need to deal with, but then also trying to figure out, well, what do we need? Right, Because I would say, quite frankly, even initially, it was, you know what, I'll have a trust team that's in charge of GRC and they'll hand our customers. Kind of an easy way to go about that, pretty traditional model that I've seen. But then quickly, as we were trying to go through that, and one, customers started wanting to dig more, had a lot more things. It became a lot more complicated discussions, especially with privacy regulations on top of that. It's like, okay, you know, we actually need two teams. I have an internal compliance team, and then I have an external team that's helping customers navigate through that field. And I think even more recently, as we're talking about AI and what's there, what's not there, are we making decisions, not making decisions? Even just being able to go through that is something that we had to get a bit more involved in. So I think, in terms of was it something that we needed to shift? With overall, to me, that was one of the things that it was appealing to me. I've even been in a retail in the past. That I'm happy other people want to do that. I don't know that I would want to go back to retail because it's really hard to justify something negative not happening. Right? Like customers, you're not gonna not go to a store necessarily because they lost all their credit cards. At least most people. Maybe you switch to pay for cash for a little bit, but in the end, you're probably still going because it's closer than driving an extra couple miles right? Whereas on a B2B side, we lose data, something else happens, you're probably switching to something else and not coming back. So there's real business impact there. And also even when companies are making decisions about what they do, security, privacy, how we're helping them with compliance or not are absolutely big factors within that. So I would say for me, that was a real appeal to the role. I think I probably had, um, a vision of it that I don't know that everyone was initially bought in because it's like, Hey, I'll be the smaller team. And then we're worried about it later. And we quickly scaled to 20 over a couple of years in that regards, just to be able to do everything we needed to do as quickly as we were. So I think that's been the part that's been fun. And like I said, what's been more exciting for me, particularly in the last year, is now having data to show that this is working or not working. And I think that's the big difference for me of the team being able to see, hey, I can quantify this, even as we kind of mentioned it, right? I can see a multiplier in my SAO win rate after a presentation one, if my team's involved versus not. I could also even say fun stuff of like when we're dealing with Strat, like our biggest segment, we don't actually sell without security unless it's some super one-off exception, right? And that's not the same case for everyone. Right? It wasn't what our process was in the past, but it's definitely what our process is now.
0: Your reputation, I remember in Northern California always preceded you. It's like, yo, you don't know Jack well, then you probably you don't know anything about that but one of the things that you and I always had in common is that we're the sons of first generation immigrants, and it's not unique per se, but it's something that's a commonality. Tell us a little bit about how your upbringing and maybe the, the background of your family, how that's influenced you as a security leader, as a technologist, as a husband, as a father, because sometimes. When we're thinking about other cybersecurity leaders or colleagues, sometimes it's easy to just see them as the professional and not have a full appreciation as to how they get there and what has really helped them be successful.
1: You actually do bring up a good point that's interesting that we probably don't talk about a lot, right? Being kind of the son of an immigrant. I mean, my mother's from Honduras. Love joking with this. Always becomes a very interesting story that she was supposed to be a nun. Ended up didn't taking her final vows, or maybe that would be a much more interesting story, but she was a nun. That's how she came to the U.S. That's how she was able to get an education. She came from a very poor village in Honduras where her parents didn't actually have a house with running water until much later when she was able to buy it for them after she left the nunnery. And they were the first people that had it. But when you're dealing in that type of environment, Right. She was the first of sixteen. Um, but eight made it past five. It's a sad thing, but it's just a reality of situation. All my mom's sisters had the same first name. They were all Maria. They all had a different middle name, which is what they really went by, but all her sisters had the same first name. Now, is that because they knew something may happen or not? I'm not gonna guess or not, but like it's a different type of life that having a 50% mortality rate is not uncommon. Not having clean running water makes that a lot more difficult. I am not going to say that by any means my upgrading was anywhere crazy like that, but knowing my mom went through some of that, I think in some cases it gives you a different perspective of like, you know, hey, sometimes things get bad, sometimes things get complicated, but like in the grand scheme of things compared to what it could be, I don't know that uh, I get as worried about as maybe as I could otherwise, because it's like, you know what, my daughter, she's healthy, we don't need to worry about that. I grew up, I never, I wouldn't say we were... uh, necessarily really well off or anything especially she was a school teacher my dad had some businesses and stuff with it but we were never hungry so like that was a pretty big step up and especially if i look at what my daughter has now that's an even bigger change Uh, i think that does provide a little bit of a different perspective of like when things do get complicating you need to do stuff hey you get through it you need to do it and honestly it's a lot better than what my grandfather did which is having to go to a plantation every day and do manual labor and not get paid anything That is obviously something that has a big impact for me as well.
0: I find it interesting that within our space, what I love about it is that you get this diverse group of folks that all have different stories. Everyone's got their origin story effectively.
1: No, I mean, I think it does go into maybe, I think even more so where I look around, what do I typically care about when I hire, right? It's actually kind of, to me, an interesting aspect with it. What I care about probably more than anything else. Is this someone passionate about what they're doing, right? Do they care? Like if there was any way, and my team unfortunately in some cases has figured this out at times over the years for some that may have not worked out for me as well as others. If you lose that passion and you lose that caring about what you're doing, that's probably like the almost the worst thing you can do. Like you can mess up, you can screw something up, something can happen, you typically recover, you become complacent. And that's the thing that drives me absolutely crazy. And I think some of that is partially maybe how we look at it, what we're doing, but I think also just like, how do we get better? And for me, the bigger aspect is, as you said, hey, everyone has a different story. I think even if you looked at my team, I have people from all different types of backgrounds, different levels of experience, and that's purposeful right? Like I I actually don't want the same type of experience, the same type of background, because especially when we're dealing with security, one, it changes all the time. So it's important to understand what's going on. But two, I think having different perspectives on it help you find a better solution. And and I I know sometimes I think people think I'm joking about this even within my own team at times. I'm like, I actually don't think I'm coming up with the best idea. Half the time, I think if everyone agrees with me, that's probably a warning sign that that was a really bad idea and we need to go back and figure out what to do. And let's make sure that we can really figure out what's there and what's the right way to tackle some of those solutions. Because if you think about what's been happening with stuff over the last 25 years, right, that i have been basically in security, kind of started off in one area, move into another. The threats change all the time. Now, in some cases, we're still dealing with some of the basics. Hey, are you patching your systems? Do you have passwords? Do you have MFA? Do you have all that? But there's different things that happen all the time and different ways to change it. And especially if you think about it from a threat perspective, attackers only need to find one way in, right? So if I'm considering and looking at things in the same way over and over, someone's going to find a way to bypass that. And if I'm not thinking about that same thing, I'm going to fall behind.
0: Regarding threats, one thing that is unique as of today, the majority of security leaders don't yet have a full-blown responsibility of securing a internally developed internally fed internally grown ai model that's their that's their own i suspect that in the future as more businesses adopt more and more and they build their own that will become far more common but as of today it's still not the most prevalent thing Mm -hmm. what within moving into your CISO role at Gong, where the AI capabilities and the data sets and the additional intelligence and correlations that you pull from there that then deliver business outcomes. What have you found to be really different in terms of looking at it from a controls perspective, or what has that been like for you?
1: So if we're thinking about what we're doing for our own internal aspect, I think one of the things that becomes a little bit different is simply scale and speed of business i know it probably seems a bit silly especially now that the move to cloud is almost 20 years old and all that fun stuff but when you're dealing with massive data sets and you're working with that and you're dealing with the amount of data you're going through is massive right like even the fact i remember years ago i'd be like oh hey for like a terabyte of logs that's like a lot of data and i probably go through 10 times that in a day alone right so like that is one aspect even when it's creating different things what to do i think from just understanding perspective what are the threats or what are the things i need to consider right i would say to some extent it was easier when i initially started because we were simply providing data back to people hey we're making it visible this is what's happening i think Mm -hmm. as we're progressing and now we're needing to understand is that good bad what makes you better now you have to start thinking about. Well, what does that mean from is there any potential bias happening with it? Am I what am I saying going to do something if I'm creating an email from someone now automatically? How do I ensure those templates are correct? How do I want to do different things? So I think the use of it becomes something that you really need to think about. But then also, how do I validate what's happening with it? And how do I understand what the developers and data scientists are doing? where they're working with us. Things are moving so quickly that it's not as if I'm gonna be in every meeting they have, nor should I, nor do I wanna be, but how do we start setting up some of the frameworks for them to understand it and have ways to kind of validate, hey, is it still meeting our needs? Are we making sure data is being used in the right way? We use a lot of our training models around like transcription ensuring that there's no real customer data that's included. How are we making sure those are accurate? What are we doing? I think all of those kind of come together in a manner that's a bit different than uh, what I had to worry about kind of in the past and being able to move quickly with it. And then I think the bigger part that I've seen security leaders, it almost feels similar to uh, I'll go with cloud again for fun. When it initially popped out, people were freaking out, right? Like, oh, my God, I can't use cloud. Cloud is insecure. This is going to be the death of us. Things move so quickly. If I go to cloud, we're going to get hacked. Sometimes you still have some big stuck in that aspect. But really, it's like, how am I utilizing it well? What can I do? Because in some cases I can do things there that I couldn't otherwise. I think to me, LLM is the same thing. I can't say I'm not going to have business data in there. I have to. How can I use it correctly? How do I have the right safeguards into it? How can I monitor it? How can I work with it? How do I make sure I'm working with it? Because to me, it's very similar to this aspect. If I'm trying to just say no, guess what? It's happening either way. It would be much better to figure out, okay, hey, you know what? Maybe chat GPT isn't great for my sales team. But if I have my own model with them and my own API, so my data is not getting pulled into something else. That could make sense right so it's finding the right medium to figure out how you're working with things to be able to move forward and move quickly because if you just try and be the old legacy office and no again it, it doesn't work people will find ways to move it it's here people see value it's going quickly how do we make sure we're part of that solution versus trying to slow things down and slow the business quite frankly
0: that's one of the compelling things about what businesses like yours do which is adding different ways of interacting with the data to draw better insights for decision-making. I remember one thing you and I were talking about was the idea of providing feedback in terms of effectiveness of evading. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm being very general here, somewhat on purpose, but the idea that the model that your organization has built based on what you've trained it on can be astute enough And I know I'm personifying code here and machines, but it can provide enough additional insights based upon what it knows to act almost like as an indirect and if not a direct type of coach. that's never
1: really existed. I know. I think it's a, it's a different change, right? Like, I mean, if you think about it, one of the ways that we also talk about it is we have a reality platform. And you kind of briefly talked about that a little bit of like, hey, people would put in stuff in Salesforce and you hope what they put in is accurate. But Uh, like salespeople are naturally optimistic. So I could have easily missed if I'm the sales guy. I have no budget. What's going on? Do I even have the right contact? What do I have to be able to make a decision on? And we're making decisions on opinions, right? So the fact that now you're able to, again, see what's happening, have guidance, know what works. So it's not just a feeling. It's like, this is what's happening this is what's going on i mean uh if you really like sales gong has a lot of fun newsletter that gives you fun little insights right like things around 86 percent of reps respond with an hour for certain things and just like a bunch of stuff that may or may not even always be obvious uh, i thought for me one of the fun ones i think it was last year might even be the year before where they went through the rep that was actually cursing but not in a negative way a positive way build up report and was more successful than someone that didn't depending on where they were based and just stuff that isn't always apparent but as you're working through the data being able to see some of that is really interesting and like i said to you i think when uh we did the our own aspect with that to me it was kind of funny because i think even my leadership team was almost in disbelief of the impact that we were having as a security team or in some cases maybe it seems obvious of like hey if we're not talking to the security team Maybe they're not serious, especially if they're a bigger customer, because we know we're going to integrate. We're going to need a lot of data. So it's probably not going to close. But before it was like, hey, we think it's a hurdle versus like, no, no, this is like, this needs to be a step of a process. We're not going to close a $2 million account if we haven't gone through security and privacy. It's just not going to happen. So like for me, that's been kind of a, a fun thing where we're seeing different things with it. And then you always get stuck in the Is it happenstance? Is it correlation? Is it causation? So those are fun discussions that you couldn't have until you have data. So I think that's some of those aspects where you're seeing it a bit differently that to me is fun to see.
0: Well, yeah, just to have those insights from the consumer side, not necessarily the B2B side, you have to work extra, extra hard to glean certain correlations. Yeah, the
1: prompt engineering, right? Of like, That's right. How do I ask the right question to get the right insight or not is uh, becoming its own fun aspect. Which implies that you know what the outcome is. Or am I asking it in such a manner that I'm making it give me the answer I want? That's right. But
0: am I getting as much as I could be getting? Because perhaps I don't know how to interact with it.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges where people are trying to understand it, right? I mean, I think luckily, at least for what we're doing is we're providing it back to them. Like, hey, these are the things that are important. These are areas that we know customers typically care about, right? Like, Can I quantify win rate? Can I quantify ACV? Can I quantify how long it takes from first call to close? Methodology adoption, all that sort of fun stuff. So those are a little bit easier, I would say. So I think from a commercial standpoint, you're seeing where we need to create those and make sure it's meaningful to people. So it's something that makes sense. But on the other side of the house, it it is kind of an interesting kind of, eh, I guess it's more of an art. It's not really a science of What is the right things to do? How do I make sure that my answers aren't even getting manipulated? But how many people ask it? Right. Because as models get trained, and I think you've seen some stuff come out with like, I think it was three, five was really, really good on certain math problems. And now it's not as good as they're tweaking the model. Right. So it's like, what are their impact of making a model more accurate in one way? Well, what does that mean for the other questions? Right. And I think this is where you'll probably see more of a pivot of some of the really big ones are really great and they're really interesting. But when you get into certain areas that you really want detail on, you want something specific and you want a model that's for that area, right? Like I probably don't want to be using a sales model for math. Similarly, I don't think I want to use a very math-heavy model for language. Just probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But again, we're still figuring out what makes the most sense there. This is why everyone's running around, spending lots of money and working on generative AI and large language models. But I think that's going to be an area that we'll see more out of, of not even how to ask it, but how are you tweaking and kind of working with those models to give you what you want in a manner where you feel the results are consistent and accurate the way you need them to be because we're trying to make people faster so it's even more important now that i feel that accuracy rate is where we want it to be because the last thing you want is hey this person should do this and that's the wrong thing because then that's going to be counterproductive right so decisions i tell you to make are ones that are helping you and not hurting you Otherwise, that's extremely destructive. And I think you're already starting to see some of that kind of peek in. And and that's something I know we spent a whole lot of time on is, okay, what's the accuracy rate? What do we feel like it is? How are we constantly evaluating what those results are and ensuring, hey, we made this tweak. Did that make it better? Did that make it worse? Did that make it better for this, but not better for that? Like that's something that requires a lot of just work and, and kind of tuning that people are just really digging into more, even though, as you mentioned. It's been there for a while. It's gotten a lot more moved because it's become more commercial, but it's still a field that's growing tremendously and it's not fully defined, right? Like even the fact of, hey, maybe more specific models are better than just one really big model. That's a concept that's relatively new and still being debated, right? Like we'll get to see in the end, hopefully in a few years, which way it really should be. But like just seeing some of that and being part of it, it's not something you typically get to do all the time because it's a big technology show.
0: With the idea of training the model, and and feeding the machine effectively. As of today, mid-2023, we're in the middle of some pretty dramatic shifts that are happening from a pure legal and regulatory perspective. Where, in the case of, let's say, content creators, today we have the Writers Guild in Hollywood striking for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons is the use of models to potentially, but perhaps to enhance, or maybe in some cases to fully replace some of the work that they do. Mm -hmm. This is problematic in terms of how people can pursue a livelihood or a career or the arts, but also impacts in terms of how we understand things like copyright, where some of these models appear to have been trained on data that not speaking about your data, you obviously have something completely separate. I'm talking about the more commercial models. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, of course. Have been trained on what is being alleged to be works or data that they did not have the rights to. How do you see any of these changes from a potential legislative standpoint impacting not the commercial side per se, but more like the B2B side? Would a certain type of legislation be really problematic?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple aspects, right? There's a a very different one of, okay, did I use a a Twitter feed for fun, right? Since that's one of the ones that's really in the news to help train my model. Should I have been able to do that, not be able to do that? Is that public domain, not public domain? That's a very messy one, right? I think, as you mentioned, commercials a bit different. Hey, we're training our own, we're using our own data. We're working with how our, our customers to create a model for them that's specific to them as well. So they're just using their data. So I'm less concerned about that aspect. I think what we will see that is already starting to happen, because it, again, it kind of reminds me of, uh, unfortunately, where I think we're still at from a security perspective, if you really think about it, we think legislation helps, but we don't really know what we're doing with it. You don't necessarily have the SMEs that are ones drafting the laws and you end up with something that in theory kind of helps but it becomes a checkbox and it's more of a compliance exercise than actually fixing your issue. And I'm a little concerned based on what I'm seeing. I think we're kind of in that sort of scenario, right? Hey, we're really worried about it. You see EMEA freaking out of the privacy perspective as well, right? We need to do something because we have to regulate it. We have to do this. We have to do that. Uh, I think, in theory, having some guardrails probably makes a lot of sense. I, I think there's some concerns of what happens if AI goes wild or decides that it's more uh, beneficial to do something else that's to the detriment of someone, right? Um, there's a lot there, but I think quite frankly, a lot of it is until we better understand it and what it's being used for, it's really difficult to say that just putting in some of the legislation, like I think Massachusetts even just tried to pass a bill too, or just passed a bill, I forget which way it went, on top of EMEA, hey, this is how it should be, without really understanding how are they getting data, how is it being trained, what is it being used for, what are we really looking for, right? So outside of just saying, hey, you can't use public domain data, what does that mean? And then I think you have the bigger complication, particularly with, let's say, the SAG and everyone else, who owns that content if it's being created, right? If I'm working for Warner Brothers and I'm an artist, but I put it in here and then it's being automated by my, without me, do I still have any rights to that or not, right? And I think that's where that gets really complicated. So I think it's, again, an area that's just really new. I don't think it's really defined. I think from a legislation standpoint, realistically, I don't think it's going to have as much of an impact directly on B2B, particularly if you're using your own models versus like, hey, I'm completely reliant on ChatGPT or OpenAI's model. Now I need to do something different. Um, We'll see what happens with that. But I think the bigger aspect is just how do we monitor it? How do we make sure we can figure out what's the right way to go about it? Because uh, unfortunately, I mean, look at PCI, right? I know you and I have talked about stuff many years in the past and have some direct yes. experience there. Oh, yeah. PCI didn't stop breaches. Nope. It did give people a baseline and people got a bunch of funding and it did help, I would say, mature a lot of companies, which was great, but it didn't completely fix the problem because then you also get stuck in the matter of like, well, if it's not in PCI, I'm not doing it. Well, that's a pretty crappy security model, right? So I think that's my only other concern with it is that you don't want to get so stuck where it becomes so prescriptive That I miss the bigger issues that probably have higher value from a risk perspective. But having a baseline does help move things down the area. So it's going to be, hopefully, how do we get the right people that understand the right topics to put in something that's practical, but not so prescriptive that we do nothing else but that. Because in that, I've never seen work as a really good way to fix something.
0: You brought up privacy concerns in the context of European law. And even here in the state of California, where we have a version of right to be forgotten, how do you uncouple that from a full-blown LLM? It's not like you're deleting a row per se in a spreadsheet.
1: I think it depends, right? Quite frankly, we can do that pretty easily. So for my specific use case, it's actually pretty easy because we could get rid of anything associated with anyone because we were built to be able to do some of that. Now, in some other situations, that gets a lot messier, right? Like, let's say I'm an artist. I created something. Now it's part of a different model. I feel like I own it. They feel like they own it. That's where it gets messy. Um, I think the other aspect is, do I understand how that data is being used, right? That's typically one of the bigger things with privacy, at least more in the U.S. than EMEA, right? Like, a lot of it's, do I understand, do I agree that it can be used in a certain manner or not? Do I have an ability to take it away, not use it, etc.? cetera? But even with that, if you look into everything, you also have legitimate business interest, right? So if I need to keep that data to provide my service to you and you agree to get those services, like things still go in there. Um, but I think this is where people are trying to play catch up to. We didn't really think about certain types of data being accessible, certain types of data being used in other ways. How do people understand what that is and how can we ensure that it's only being utilized in the manner that we expect versus some other way, right? Like, it's also you don't want it to the extreme of, hey, I sent a company an email. Now they've used that email and created a model out of it. And they're using my words with their customers or something crazy like that, right? Like, there's lots of stuff where it can kind of expand. But it is, I think, an area that is still maturing. And it's not real clear. The main thing is, how can I ensure if I'm using models, do I still keep that data forever? Once I train the model, do I get rid of the data? There's different ways to kind of build models and how you go through that too, right? And if I don't have any of that source data after that model's trained, is that still really part of that model anymore? I think that's some of those areas that are probably going have more definition. And then that does get messier because, hey, maybe if I use that to help train my model, but I get rid of it and I no longer have it, so what do I have to delete? There's nothing there anymore, right? I don't have any of your source data. Maybe part of it's within that model, but it's it's almost like I taught you something. How do I get you to unlearn it? It's not so simple anymore.
0: That's that's definitely one of the things that comes up with new security leaders or early career folks that are interested in cyber. I had somebody ask me, what would that look like in practice today in an enterprise? And the answer that I had for them wasn't terribly great. It was like, take your vitamins and eat your Wheaties. Because like you said, we're all trying to learn where it's going to head from everything from like a legislation standpoint tooling and understanding where our data goes
1: yeah i mean you can even take that i think this is maybe why i've always liked security it's never the same right it changes yeah. even though some of the stuff's there i mean shoot when you and i joined security there was no such thing as classes really that were <laughs> focused on security unless you want to try and go into rackf security but like it, it really wasn't there right it kind of was built out of other things i think even here it's encouraging to see that being there. But I think the part that gets lost sometimes is what we know now is probably going to be different than what we know in a year or two. And especially you add five, 10 years to that, like, forget it, it is changing all the time, which is where I think that's the aspect that's both good, but can be very confusing and harmful for people is making sure you always understand you have to kind of understand what's changing. And just because it worked in the past doesn't mean it's going to work in the future. And what was good is now bad in some cases can be kind of funny, right? Like the whole password change I love using as an example, like, oh my God, we have to change it all the time. Where it's like, actually, it's much better to have multi-factor and different ways to be able to do it. And then I don't care about it changing nearly as much. That's a much higher security control than the fact I'm rotating it every like 21 days or something ridiculous, where now people don't even remember it and it's written in other crazy things, right? So I feel like this isn't too dissimilar from that perspective in terms of, this is what we know now it's probably going to change we need to be open to that change but we need to make sure that we understand what that risk is and have a better way to be able to respond to it once we know more which eventually we will know more
0: jack you've always been a big part of various communities whether it's the ciso community the pen testing community really being at the forefront of a lot of this community building and and one thing that dan had observed as we were preparing for the show Is that uh, Gong, beyond your role as the global CISO, you're also uh, the executive sponsor behind a program for Latin folks. Going back to where your mother was from, some of the things that you learned from observation, hearing her stories, tell us a little bit about what that's like for you. And ultimately, how do you see that impacting the professionals of the next generation or even of the current generation?
1: Yeah, sure. One of the things that I actually appreciated about Gong is I think pushed me in some areas um, to be more involved, which I think was actually something that was a bit newer for me, particularly if it's not professional perspective. And what I mean by that is, particularly if you're dealing with more cultural identity, that's it's not a security community, right? It's more of like how we're looking at it from that perspective and With a lot of the backlash in DEI recently, it's even more interesting there that I almost feel like it's even more important. But to me, one of the big aspects is how do we have a place where people can even just talk and have a way to support and understand each other? Because in some cases, especially even I would say here, um, a lot of the people that we had, they may have been the only person that was within their identity or a couple of people at the company in tech, right? So being able to have someone else that has similar experiences, and even I would say that uh, Especially, I think early on in my career, partially because of my last name, and also just because I think people were never really sure what I was, it was easy for me to be ambiguous, and I didn't necessarily talk about it. Right? If someone thought I was half Asian or something else, I may just go along with it, quite frankly, because it wasn't worth trying to correct them or explain what it is. But I actually think some of that complacency was more hurtful as I got later on in it, especially in talking with people younger in their careers. Like, hey, it would be great to understand what happened to the fact that, hey, the son of someone who was a nun and blah, 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 and all this other crazy stuff was able to do what you did, like, that's actually encouraging for me. And I'm like, oh, I I didn't realize that. So I think that's something for me that's been a bit more recent to some extent is being able to make sure like, how do I talk about that? How do I make sure people understand what's there? Even quite frankly, when I was younger, I was uh, in the Hispanic, the Haku Association, Hispanic Association for Colleges and Universities, where I got to do an internship with the Department of Treasury that was an encryption project back in the late 90s. That was like some of my initial introduction to some of the security stuff outside of the pen testing. So being able to have some of those and see how they benefited me and just being able to talk to it for me is something I think I'm both passionate about and also seeing like, what can we do to be able to help other people have support to be able to be successful? Because if I'm looking at people that come from different backgrounds and different things, I think it's extremely beneficial, but it also means in some cases, they may not necessarily have the same starting point. Like if I've been tech in all my life, I'm going to know all those acronyms really easily, right? If I'm switching, because let's say I came from insurance or some other type of area and I haven't been in tech, I need to have the right tools to be able to be successful and understand what's going on. And I think for me, that's been one of my big aspects where initially I was a co-lead and then moved more to executive sponsor. What can we do to be able to support the people we have? Because within my community, a lot of them are very early on, not necessarily a lot of insecurity. I do have some insecurity there, but a lot of it's more early in their career. What's the support that we can do? How can we provide mentoring? How do we show what's kind of happening with it? And really just giving people a safe place in some cases is what we've been focused on. But I think it's also an area for me that I'm constantly learning about like actually even went uh, back to just sort of training and it was the AI HR team and they had like a value of diversity certification course. I'm like, Oh, let me take this and see if I can understand it. And uh, ironically for me, at least in this regards, a lot of, I think both the benefits and how people look at it is similar to how I always looked at wanting to build security teams anyhow. Because I think having that diverse background really does help you find better solutions overall, regardless whether it's security or something else. Jack,
0: thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate you sharing your expertise and your insights.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. It's been fun to catch up and jump through a lot of fun, different topics. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Jack. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Crippino. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please Leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com.